to begin by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional custodians of the land on which the House of Sin and Studio stand today. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, and also extend that respect to First Nations people here listening today. Kids should go to school. That's what we're committed to. I haven't flip-flopped. I said no originally, then I said yes, then I have said no, and I've stuck to it. I didn't need to do this. I've already done a lot of war for the election. The English fought a civil war over this this matter. Don't deal with the nuance of the Canberra bubble. I don't know what to do with it. We have so much money. What we want is more learning in schools and less activism in schools. Issues that perhaps may be controversial today, but 30 years from now, your children, your grandchildren are going to be thankful that you stood up for what it was right. Represent. 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 That's right. You are on Represent, Sin Media's flagship political show. Thank you very much for being with us here on a Friday afternoon. One of the few studio, uh, one of the few shows that are back in studio, which is very exciting. My name is Tal. I'm the executive producer here on Represent. Normally, I'd be joined by a few of my fellow co-hosts, but unfortunately, we, we are all pretty busy bees this week, and we're just going to have to deal with the fact that I'm the only one here at the moment, and that's okay. Before we get started, I'd just like to acknowledge uh, the traditional owners of the land, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We are going to be talking a bit about uh, two things which are quite pertinent um, this week um, to the traditional owners of this land. One, of course, is uh, the budget the federal budget, which was just um, announced this week. Um, and it's always important to remember that we need to be addressing um, some of the major obstacles that are facing um, the traditional owners of this land um, and putting together policy solutions and putting aside a lot of money to pay the rent. Um, I pay my respects to their elders past and present. Um, and anyone that's listening today, how are you going? Um, the other one that we're going to be talking about a little bit later on is the Israel and Palestine conflict, which is happening overseas, but um, the ramifications of that sort of colonialism obviously um, have issues here in Australia, um, and I think it's important to remember that this land was never ceded, much like other territories around the world. Welcome back to Represent. You're with us here on Sin. This is our flagship political program. Um, apologies for some of the stuff that some of the gremlins got into the machine at the top of the hour. Um, you know, it's been a year off. Cut us some slack. Um, this week was the budget, the 2021 federal budget handed down by Treasurer Josh Frydenberg, and we decided to catch up with some people who would give us some insight on how this is going to be affecting um, young Australians, uh, but also... Um, Cassandra Serke, who Millie spoke to, told us a bit about how this is going to affect women, and particularly women's health. So here is our reporter Millie Kossian's chat with Cassandra Serke. So welcome back. You're listening to Represent on Sin. Today I'm joined by Cassandra Serke from the University of Melbourne. Cassandra is a professor of medicine, and she is the principal investigator of the Women's Healthy Aging Project, the longest-running study of women's health in Australia. She's joining us today to discuss the implications of the federal budget for women's health. Welcome, Cassandra. Thanks. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you on the program to discuss the budget. 
So we're hearing a lot of talk that this budget is doing more for women than ever before. The Women's Economic Security Statement boasts more than $3 billion in spending with $100 million for cervical and breast cancer screening and new funding for addressing endometriosis. In your opinion, does the federal budget deliver for women's health? Well, look, I think, you know, it's been a really great budget with lots of spending, so I don't think people can complain. Um, I'm just really disappointed that I don't see anything there for women's healthy ageing. So, you know, women over 65, it's often said that they're invisible and I'm really disappointed they seem to be invisible again. So, you know, uh, in Australia, the majority of women, luckily, we live over 65. So, in fact, the mean age of death for women is, you know, over 84. So, on average, people live over 84. So when we really look at what women are suffering with, it's chronic diseases and disability in older age. So the leading cause of death in women in our country, you know, if you're an Australian woman, what are you the most likely to die of? The answer, that's dementia. Right, really? Okay. It is. And yet we know dementia is preventable. But it's not preventable once you've already got the early signs of it. You know, we really need to start early. And so that's why it's really important we don't neglect people over 65. That's the majority of our women in Australia. And was there any funding in the budget specifically for um, these kind of areas you're discussing and you pursue in your research? Well, look, I think um, the government's been really good at listening and we did a lot of really important work and really long work back in 2018 and 19 um, to form a new women's health strategy. And that's a 2020 to 2030 strategy. And in that strategy, five key areas were outlined. Now, in the budget, um, two of those key areas um, have been funded well, so you know about the endometriosis and the um, breast cancer, which is in one of the key areas, which is female preponderant conditions, and family violence, which, of course, is really important. But there were three areas I felt were not so well funded, which was healthy ageing, and the second is chronic disease prevention. Mm. And the third was mental health for women, you know, where we see depression and anxiety are, are, are key issues. Yeah, I, I saw there was funding for um, screening for mental health issues among pregnant women and new mothers, um, about $47 million. Is that And that is so important. That's such yeah. a key area. You know, I think pregnancy is a, a wonderful time, not just because um, of the new baby, but it's a perfect time in the, uh, the health of a woman's life. Pregnancy is a little bit of a stress test. And I don't just mean that to all those mums out there going, absolutely, it was a stress test. No. You know, the same way we put people on treadmills and make them jog to see if they have heart disease. We give people a glucose tolerance test and get them to drink all this sugar and see how their pancreas responds. Well, pregnancy does those things. So in fact, during pregnancy, something like gestational diabetes, that's if you have had gestational diabetes, it kind of tells us you've got four times the risk of diabetes later on in your life. So it's an optimal time to focus on prevention. And that's great. You know, but again, I have to say, you know, I, I really don't like seeing women over 50 neglected yeah, from that of focus. Course. We're seeing a lot of money being committed to frontline family violence support services with $260 million to those frontline services and another $164 million towards financial help for women fleeing family violence. Obviously, there's been a big emphasis on this area 
for women's health. Do you think enough is being spent on violence prevention? Um, I didn't see any items for violence prevention. So when you say enough is being spent, <laughs> what yeah. happens is, you know, violence is really important in our program and it's something we're actually focusing on and we have a whole new program um, looking at this this year and it's so essential um, that those services that have been funded continue to be funded. So I was really pleased to see that in the budget. I think that's fantastic. Um, I think the issue of prevention is important. And this is one of the things that we've taken on because you often hear about, you know, um, mental health problems. And, but we're finding that, in fact, chronic diseases of ageing happen more in women who have had violence. So, you know, it doesn't just stop in that, you know, immediate instance or even several years afterwards. We're talking in your ageing 20, 30 years later, you can still have impact from what you suffered oh. earlier on. And, but we don't understand enough about this because there has not been much research into the um, you know, chronic disease effects of violence. It's been mainly focused at acute impacts, which of course is very important also. Um, but I think it's really important that we look at those chronic diseases of ageing because these impacts, you know, they last forever. Of course, yes. Hopefully we see more funding for important research in this area, but it is great to see the funding for frontline services. Um, and my final question is, does this budget represent a legitimate turn towards investing in women's health after this area has been quite neglected in previous budgets? Or do you think that kind of the rage of Australian women and the Australian public this year following the Brittany Higgins scandal, amongst others, has forced the Prime Minister's hand in a likely election year. Oh, my gosh. That's, that's a loaded question. I know, I know. <laughs> that's a loaded question. Look, what I'll say is um, I'm, I'm sure the government is being responsive um, to what people are saying. I'm sure that is true. I think that um, what's important is people really do want change, so they'll be watching. It's not just the glossy item of X million or X billion being put here. People are very educated. People really are switched on. And they're going to be watching where that money goes and making it sure, making sure it goes to where it's really needed. So I think, you know, I think that's the important thing is beyond the headlines um, and, and beyond that glossiness, people really are interested. To, to see what actually happens with that money. Absolutely, and it is fantastic to see all this money being allocated to women and women's health. So thanks so much for joining us today, Cassandra. My pleasure. This is Sin, where young people run the show. You are back on Represent. This is Sin. I'm Tar, one of the producers here, and Viet is back in the studio. Yes, sir. Hopefully you didn't miss me too much. Didn't. We're hanging out for you to get back in here. I really was hanging out for you when I was losing my mind on the buttons just before. Um, so it's good to have you here. It's good to have uh, your calm, your calm presence. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Depending on the stories we do today, but we'll see. <laughs> I think we need some. Uh, I think we need some calm. Everyone needs some calm at the moment. Um, yet earlier today, I was lucky enough to catch up with Dr. Catherine Daly from RMIT and had a chat to her about the budget. And so we've got an interview that we'll play. Uh, we'll play right now. Welcome back to Represents. Dr. Catherine Daly is a senior lecturer in the School of Global, Urban and Social Studies at RMIT and is also the program manager of the Bachelor of Youth Work and Youth Studies at RMIT University. She joins Represent today to discuss the impact of the 2021 federal budget on young Australians, unemployment and low-income families 
as well as the national debt implications for future generations. Catherine, thanks for being here. Thank you. Um, so young Australians have already been subject to underemployment and high rates of unemployment during the pandemic. How much responsibility have young Australians been shouldering? A, a lot. Um, and particularly in Australia, because they've, you know, where we have been, you know, we've done such a good job at keep, keeping the um, the virus out. So young people actually aren't affected. Their health hasn't been affected by the virus, but they are currently and definitely in the future going to be, bit, you know, shouldering the economic um, load of the the government stimulus response. And that's not to say we shouldn't have had a stimulus response, but the reality is that this debt will be paid off by future taxpayers, which are today's young people. And so in terms of the 2021 budget, um, what measures have been put in place um, that are going to be affecting young people uh, specifically, you know, when it comes time for them to uh, be acting as those taxpayers paying paying back that deficit? Debt, sorry. Um, yeah, so I guess in short, probably not enough, like not in re- not to achieve what you've just outlined in terms of, you know, seeing young people as future ta- taxpayers that have a, uh, a very significant debt to be repaid. Now, some of the measures that have been put in place in the budget that are to um, ostensibly address youth unemployment have been largely around skills training. So there's been some investment in um, trying to get people who are not currently in education or employment um, into basic skills training and the details on that haven't been um, revealed but what that usually looks like is we usually see it when money goes into skills training is it's usually targeted so areas where there's a shortage of employees there'll be a stimulus you know or free education or free training to try and match that need so where where we've seen it in the past is um in you know aged care kind of settings you know there's a shortage of workers in that workforce so obtaining qualifications through um the TAFE system have been made available and obviously aged care is a big part of this budget um is there uh is there scope in it for these these kind of measures in terms of aged care are they looking to get young people unemployed into the aged care sector through this budget um, they haven't said that specifically. I wouldn't be surprised mm-hmm. at all if we did. We did see, we did see that. One of the dilemmas we have when um, we see money going into training as a way to address unemployment is it works on the assumption that people are unemployed because they don't have skills. But the current situation with youth unemployment isn't that. I mean, there are, there are. I'm sure that there are a group of young people who don't have skills, but there's also huge numbers of people with university degrees who are unemployed. So it's not that they don't have the skills; it's that there's not enough jobs. So simply, you know, funding TAFE places won't address mm-hmm. the need to create more jobs. I suppose last year um, there was packages like the the job ready graduates, um, not packages. Sorry. Um, uh, reforms, the job-ready graduates reforms, um, changing what higher education looked like. Um, is it? Do the changes need to be made um, on people entering the higher education system and what kind of courses they're choosing? Or is it, like you said just then, on the back end, end of it uh, and finding jobs for them, creating jobs for them to go into, and how would that look uh, if you are creating jobs for university graduates to be entering? 
Uh, probably a bit of both. You know, like where we do have skills shortages, particularly with the close, closures of the borders, um, the government needs to, you know, do whatever it can to try and build up the skills here. One of the issues it's facing is that some of the skills shortages are in very advanced skills professions. So, like, we've got a shortage of doctors, a shortage of psychologists, and those are degrees that take six to ten years. You know, so one budget isn't going to suddenly bring up a workforce shortage while we're unable to get people from overseas. Now, anything that, you know, makes education more accessible is always going to be good because the more educated our society is, the stronger employment is and just the stronger society does as a whole. Um, one of the dilemmas with the Jobs Ready graduate package is that some degrees did see a reduction from the student cost but not to the university and but some saw you know doubling or tripling of fees but overall that money that went to universities reduced per student um which you know that that money's got to be absorbed by somewhere so whether it's the a reduced student experience or the university start offering less but you know when we say budget cuts something's going to get cut in terms of the quality and that was something that um, begun last year. Obviously, it's been going on for quite a while. There was a dramatic um, reckoning last year and, and this year as well. Um, it's looking like it's going to be pretty grim in 2022 with re- with reductions in funding. Um, some other areas where there's been reductions um, in funding in the budget have been in the unemployment services. So, um, so sorry, uh, welfare, like Centrelink, there's been an $860 million cut uh, from employment services in Centrelink, um, which will reduce face-to-face meetings and force more people to get on there digitally. Um, what's that going to do for for young people who are trying to uh, navigate the world of being unemployed or being underemployed? Um, I, I don't think that that measure will affect young people as much as it will affect other other demographics. It will affect mm-hmm. young people, but young people tend to be more okay with um doing these things in the digital spaces and one of the big issues with young people is underemployment but being even slightly employed often means that they're too employed to be eligible for Centrelink you know it's that fine Mm -hmm. line between how many hours you can do before your payments get cut one of the issues with reducing payments is that if people simply don't have enough money to live they we, we see them in present in other services. So they either end up, um, you know, at welfare services, you know, needing material aid. They either end up in the court system because they've, you know, been caught, you know, stealing or they can't afford transport fines. You know, when people don't have enough money to live, society will pay for it one way or the other. And so um, the kind of outcomes of, of people being put in those situations are people getting pushed into poverty, um, insecure housing, um, uh, a lack of re- uh, reliable food or childcare measures. Um, those kind of things are obviously all fallout, uh, all going to be part of the fallout from the pandemic. Is there much in this budget that is going to be going towards low to middle income families uh, and helping them in that, uh, avoid those scenarios? There's been a few measures that have been, um, said to be targeting low-income families so we've seen there was an announcement that single parent families will be able to buy um, purchase their home with just a two percent deposit which is obviously significantly less than what is usually required for a deposit um it's arguable as to whether or not that's a good strategy like a two percent deposit is is very low and with 
current interest rates being so low, they're only going to go up, you know, so it might actually make low-income families, you know, push them further on the margins because they're, they're overcommitted. Some of the other um, strategies that have gone out, there's some more initiatives for first home buyers, but again, um, it's that double-edged sword because one of the issues with the housing market for young people trying to enter the housing market is that there's just not enough houses for sale. So there's more people wanting to buy a house than there are houses for sale. So policies that incentivise more people to buy doesn't address that solution. What um, would be better was policies that incentivise more people to sell because increasing the number of people in the wanting to buy a house is only going to push housing prices up, making it less accessible for young people. Have we seen any examples of policies in recent years that are incentivising people to sell? No. So there was talk at the last federal election, um, you know, the big debate around the franking credits and the negative gearing. Mm -hmm. And part of this negative gearing, and I think Labor ended up dropping it off their agenda, was essentially that it positions people that have second or third or four houses as investments is they actually get tax breaks from it or eligible to get tax breaks from it. And so getting rid of that would make the appeal of a house as an investment less appealing and, you know, people could invest their money in their superannuation or stocks or whatever else. And the premise behind that is if you make houses less appealing as a long-term investment strategy, then people that use them, you know, as rentals, as, you know, essentially their retirement, will sell them and invest elsewhere, which frees, which creates more stock mm -hmm. for low-income earners, first-home buyers to be able to enter the housing market. But no, we haven't seen any economic policy that would do that. And um, I, I wouldn't foresee the federal Liberal Party doing it. Um, Labor have danced with that, but have never committed to it. Any, do you think there's any chance of them returning to that for the, for the upcoming election or do you think that's something that they'll just leave and rely on other policies to potentially plug up those um, plug up the housing market in the meantime? It's really hard to know. Like um, Albanese's speech last night was probably the most inspiring speech I've seen, um, him giving a long time, but it's, it's still reasonably unclear um, where Labor are going to position themselves on a lot of these economic policies coming into the next federal election you know historically this really would have been something Labor's committed to but what we've seen over the last few federal elections is both parties have moved closer and closer together so there isn't necessarily um a clear prediction that one party would take sort of the moral stance absolutely it's going to be interesting to see how it does play out over the next year but um Catherine thank you very much for joining us today um we loved hearing from you and uh best of luck with the rest of your research Thanks so much. See you later. You're listening to Sin. Welcome back to Represents. This is your flagship political show housed here on Sin every Friday from 4 to 5. That song you heard right there was Homesick by Maisie Taylor. And my name is Tal. Joining me is Viet, co-producer of Represent. Viet, how are you today? I'm good. How are you doing, Tal? Very well, thank you. Very well. You've got a bit of context for us on the Israel and Palestine situation. Yeah, so right now the Israel-Palestine conflict is currently very hot. It's probably at its highest peak ever since um, the, tw the last time tensions were this hot was 2014. Um, with, with Israel and Palestine really, um, really going as a tit-for-tat sort of um, attacks over one another, and this was 
And, uh, ta- and take us through the, the tit there, um, which led to the tap. The tit um, started with what? Where, where, was the, where was the start of these um, really escalating conflicts this, this time? Yeah, so Netanyahu issued an order to the Israeli Defence Force to start forced evictions from the um, occupied um, uh, territories of East Jerusalem. Um, and so that really led to a lot of tension between um, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, and uh, Palestinian protesters. Um, and as a result of that, um, the Israeli Defense Force started to uh, retaliate. And and during um, Ramadan, which is the holiest period for many uh, Muslims around the world, um, they decided to to really um, start raiding the mosque in East Jerusalem, which is um, the h- third holiest site in um, in the Muslim Islamic um, religion. And so that's really what sort of led this tit-for-tat um, in East Jerusalem. And, yeah. so, and so just to summarise there, mm. people living in their homes have lived there for many, many years in Palestine. And the Israeli Defence Force has come in and said... You're done. You don't live here anymore. We're taking over these houses and this territory, and then violence um, over the protests. Um, and from there, wh- wh- where, where's, where's it gone from there? It's spilled out into the streets. It's spilled out into the streets, and Hamas has also um, started um, attacking, um, well, shooting rockets over into Israel. And then, as a result, you've had Israeli defense force shooting rockets back into the. Um, occupied territories, and particularly the um, Palestinian territories. Some pretty horrific. Area. Some pretty horrific images of um, buildings collapsing um, after they've been bombed, mm. um, and and also the sights of the rockets um, meeting Israel's Iron Dome defence mm. and and just exploding in midair. Some I saw some videos taken out the side of a passenger plane. Um, this is a ve- it's you know it's a civilian area. Um, this stuff is very intense, um, and obviously, like with much of the Israel-Palestine conflict over the last 50, 60 years, the international community um, is using a lot of words to condemn, um, but not a lot of political action as of yet. What's the response been like, particularly in the US? Um, it's definitely interesting you say that because the US has uh, blocked a recent uh, UN uh, joint statement um, condemning um, provocation from the um, the East Jerusalem area and particularly in this conflict between Israel and Palestine. Um, it, it is a permanent member of the UN um, National Security Council and so they do have veto power um, because the 14 other members of this 15-member um, council um, supported it um, with the US sort of blocking it. So it's definitely interesting to see how um, the US is m- defending Israel in a sense. And it always has done. It, it, it's always sided with Israel. Um, I think we were talking off air about the fact that um, it's very difficult. Well, a lot of countries seem to find it very difficult um, to take the side of Palestine uh, and they normally side with the much greater power in the region. Um and I suppose there's a bunch of different reasons for that. What, what, what would you say are some of the reasons why people aren't... Uh, or, sorry, some, some international actors aren't defending um, the rights of Palestinians um, to, to live freely in, uh, within their borders? Well, generally speaking, I think they just, they, much of the Western world take their lead out of um, the US foreign policy because Israel 
and the US have been traditional allies going back decades. And so it's this sort of default, um, you know, it's a natural bond that happens between Israel and um, the US um, because in Palestine, it is a Muslim-majority nation. And so particularly in the US, particularly in New York, there's a whole lot of... There's a big Jewish population living in New York. And so there is that sort of strong connection between the US and Israel because a lot of people... um, of Jewish descent ended up emigrating to the US. So it is definitely interesting in that sense. Lots of Muslim people live um, in, in America as well, obviously. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Same as here in Australia. Um, you know, I, I was saying to this, you, this to you earlier as well, but I feel like, you know, there obviously, obviously has been a, a reaction here in Australia. Um, it has been uh, quite visceral um, for some people. It's uh, one of our co-hosts, um, Yumna, who's not here today, is particularly aggrieved by things that are happening on the eve of Eid in the last, you know, the last few days of Ramadan. It's really intense. Um, and it's it's something that, you know, some people view Palestine as an occupied territory, as something that colonial powers came in and divvied up between them without any consultation with the people that have lived there for, for many generations. And I think we can draw... I, I, I would draw parallels between um, how that has been enacted over there and how, you know... A, so-called Australia came to be um, with colonial powers coming in and disregarding um, you know, everything about the land um, and the people that lived upon it. So I think potentially for some people it may be difficult to accept um, Israel's place in the displacement of peoples when it, so cl- when it, when it mirrors the own experiences here, which are, we know that Australia finds it difficult to come to terms with um, on, a, on a large scale. I, I thought it was interesting... Prime Minister Scott Morrison ran a similar line to, to one that he did last year during the Black Lives Matter um, protests um, when the when Black Lives Matter was kicking off in America and there was talks of there being uh, large gatherings here in Australia, uh, of which there was in the end. Scott Morrison's line was, we don't need to be importing those kind of ideas into this country. You know, we don't have that those same kind of issues that America has. Um, I think we know that's patently not true. He's run a similar line here. Quote, we do not want to import the troubles of other parts of the world into this country in response to there being a bit of unrest, um, somebody burning the Israeli flag on the streets in Sydney um, during a protest uh, in support of, of Palestine. So um, what, what do you think Australia's position is going to be going forward in terms of this conflict? Well, in terms of Australia's position, we normally adopt the foreign policy of US to a large extent anyway. So I wouldn't be surprised if the, um, the foreign... Uh, ministry decides to support um, Isra- the Israeli side, but um, an important sort of thing to note here is that um, we are, in terms of this criticism, it is criticism of the Israeli government and not Israelis as a population. Right? Absolutely. I think the same can be said when there's mass criticisms of, of China. The Chinese government is the focus of those criticisms, for example, not the Chinese people. I think that's absolutely a spot-on point there, Viet. Mm. And, yeah, definitely have a think about it if it was flipped on the other end, you know. If it's already bad enough that Hamas is shooting rockets into Israel, which is bad, but also does it justify Israel shooting rockets into Palestinian territory when they don't have the Iron Dome, which intercepts any rockets? So, you know, it's not a sort of level playing field because the Israeli Defence Force have some solid air defences um, There's a lot of talk of this um, escalating into the into the realms of war. 
although I think some people would debate uh, how legitimate the term war could be applied to what the potential conflict would look like in that region when you have a superpower like Israel against something that is very, very, very small in comparison in terms of size and technical ability. Yeah, and it's definitely, you know, the, it reminds me of a quote where, you know, don't judge a person's character when they are powerless, but judge a person's character when they are powerful. And definitely Israel has had its past where they've been oppressed, but right now they are acting as the oppressor, and now we're starting to see the full character, of particularly the Israeli government. Well said, Viet. You are and represent this is Sin's flagship political show. Right now, this is Chris Lansom with Always Forever. And you're listening to Represent here on Sin. Um, it's been a, a fair bit of an interesting show today. Um, you know, we've been through some interesting topics with the budget and also some, um, you know, pretty depressing news. I suppose you could say, yeah, it's a little bit of everything, yeah. kind of like the federal budget this year. <laughs> you know, just a little bit here and there, something for everybody. That's what we try and deliver here on Represent. Um, but yeah, thank you for uh, th- thank you for listening to Represent. Um, we'll be back every Friday at four to five pm here on Sin. Um, you can stick, uh, you can stay tuned to us when we're not on air on our ins- Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Find us at Sin Represent. We'll be updating that uh, and get in touch. You want to have a chat to us? You want to be interviewed? You want to do an interview? Get and in touch. And we like that attention as well. We so love please. it. We <laughs> love it. Um, thank you very much for being with us today. And do you want remember, to do it yet? Remember yeah. to stay, stay political. political. Oh, it's, uh, it's not great. This one's Fontaine Cassidy. We'll leave you this. Windward. <laughs>